It's hard for me to think of myself as a sheep. But there's no escaping the logical consequence of claiming the Lord is my shepherd. If the Lord is my shepherd, then it stands to reason I'm one of the sheep. Sheep are passive and stupid. After millennia of domesticated herd life, they're lost, they've lost the instincts they once had to defend themselves. When a wolf or a coyote gets into the flock, they're incapable of mounting any kind of defense, either singly or as a group. By taking the role of sheep, we would seem to be admitting our inability to care for and protect ourselves. So this leaves a bit of a sour taste in my mouth. Besides, it feels a little foolish and dated to force this metaphor into 21st century urban America. The last vestige of the pastoral life we have in New York City is what we quaintly call the Sheep's Meadow in Central Park. And pretty soon that will become tanning central, covered with blankets and half-naked bodies. Every culture has its mythical image of itself, often drawn from some romanticized notion or construct of its past. For instance, in the American psyche, there's the eternally free-spirited cowboy, lone ranger, rugged individualist, capitalist rodeo rider. When danger comes knocking on their door, it's not our nature to stand back and let a protector answer for us. For the rugged individualist, nothing could be more maudlin than imagining oneself as a passive sheep. We see this, by the way, this mythology currently playing out in our culture subsequent to the Parkland High School shooting. On Friday, you may have noted that thousands of students across the nation walked out of school saying they shouldn't fear for their lives while in class. So on the 19th anniversary of the Columbine massacre in Colorado, many students set aside their fear of now common school shootings to raise their voices against what they see as political inaction on meaningful gun control. But of course, but of course, guns are part of our cowboy, rugged individualist mythology. They're deeply embedded in our national psyche. At Heritage High School in Frisco, Texas, students learned a lesson about Texas gun laws during their walkout. After students had gathered in the school's gym for a rally, a few headed toward a nearby park to continue their protest. That's when a few men were spotted nearby carrying long guns slung across their shoulders just, just next to the campus. Student organizers said in a tweet that the men were protesting the walkout. We didn't know people could just legally carry AR-15s in the street, said Junior Kunde Nayamandi, 16 years old. That was really jarring for most of us. Well, these students 
just didn't realize that rugged individualists don't like it when the sheep don't stay in their pen. But now in ancient Israel, sheep imagery had a very different standing. Hebrew culture unflinchingly characterized itself as sheep, in constant need of a shepherd. Of course, they were a shepherding society. Their greatest king, David, was what? A shepherd. And when Jesus tells his friends that he is the good shepherd, they would have understood immediately the meaning in his words. So notwithstanding American rugged individualism, I have learned this sort of shepherding provides a more profound understanding of how life, my life even, fits into the created order of things. But this really is a hard slog in American church culture these days. How's a rugged individualist supposed to understand what it means to be a sheep following a good shepherd? Up to a point, of course, self-reliance is a good thing, one of the marks of adulthood. But it can't stand as the ultimate good because that would have the effect of making us into little gods, entire, entire unto ourselves. We see lots of little gods roaming around, don't we? It would limit us to a small and pinched universe because contrary to our desire, we cannot and actually do not control, and we certainly don't understand, most of what life flings at us. I sat at the bedside of a terminally ill parishioner. Her memory was beginning to fail. She could speak only haltingly. Yet when I began repeating the words, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, she began to say them along with me. She had learned the psalm as a child. And now those words served to comfort her and assure her of God's faithful presence. As she entered the valley of the shadow of death, she visioned a God who greeted her by name, defended her against all dangers, and blessed her as she reached the other side. A table was prepared for her. Goodness and mercy prevailed. I tell you, friends, when you're with someone for whom that 23rd Psalm is the ground upon which they stand, it is an extremely powerful witness, a testimony to faith in the God of life and love. It is life transforming and life affirming. Now the assurance evoked by the Good Shepherd doesn't only belong to the moment of physical death, of course, but with all transitions, all of those times when endings invite beginnings, you know, after all, what is life but a series of transitions, endings and beginnings? And sometimes these are joyful, but other times they are really painful and confusing, aren't they? And when change is upon us, we sense our vulnerability. Real and imagined dangers can threaten to undo us. 
Oftentimes, instead of moving through transitions like these with open hands and hearts, we try to wrestle them to the ground, control them beyond reasonable limits. The unknown, the hidden, the yet-to-be-revealed seems ominous. Paralysis, despair, or flailing about in useless or destructive activity can supplant creative, productive, forward movement. I've been in those spaces myself. 35 years ago, a parishioner in a former church owned the local store specializing in climbing equipment. He was a master climber, and he was also the person who wrote the book on the best climbing east of the Mississippi. He was anxious to take me out on the nearby cliffs for a climb. I didn't have to worry about a thing, he assured me. He would outfit me at the store and teach me the basics. And though I had never really climbed before, I was in pretty good shape, so one Saturday I met him early and the climb was on. Taking the lead, he was loaded with uh, bolts and clips and rope. I had been equipped with shoes and a harness. And all went well for the better part of the morning. I learned a lot following his lead, and gradually, his lead gradually brought us to increasingly difficult rock and ultimately to a high place, maybe a couple of hundred feet above the ground. Though tentative and extremely nervous much of the time, I was fine until I came to an outcropping that required, so it seemed, maneuvering sort of backwards like this. Well, losing my traction, I swung out far from the rock face like this, several hundred feet above the ground. It was rocking like a pendulum. For some long moments, I was completely frozen. And my friend began to speak soothingly about inconsequential matters for what seemed like an eternity before I regained enough composure to listen to his calm instructions about gently letting go of my fear and trusting what he was telling me. I had to trust him. Trust me, Steve. I'll get you to safety. Yeah. <laughs> well, eventually he did get me to swing myself around the outcropping in such a way that I could attach myself to the rock face and complete the climb. This was my first adventure of this sort, and I was intrigued enough that once I came to the city, through a series of serendipities, I, I found my way onto the board of directors of Outward Bound, the personal development adventure organization primarily geared towards young people, where I learned the importance of one of their fundamental mottos. If you can't get out of it, get into it. If you can't get out of it, get into it. 
Consider that for a moment. There's wisdom in this, wisdom that would even appeal to a rugged individualist. But if one is truly up against it, truly at a crossroads, in the midst of a significant transition, whether by crisis or accident, error of judgment or simple failure, the capacity to move into it successfully requires at least courage and faith and a willingness to let go and to trust. But you know, friends, where does trust like that come from? Where does it come from? What is its source? The ancient Hebrew answer, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Jesus' answer, I am the good shepherd. I will defend you against all the dangers of the day and night. I lay down my life for my sheep. Depend on me. Let go of your inadequate control. There is in those images something of the most fundamental understanding of the nature of our existence. They affirm that life is good and that God is to be trusted no matter what comes down the pike, even, we say, death itself. Now this may sound simple, bordering on the simplistic, but what we say we believe is often at odds with how we actually live into our lives. You know very well that it's entirely possible to say in here, the Lord is my shepherd, and to behave out there exactly like a little god walking around entirely in control of my destiny. It's entirely possible. More often than not, we behave as though the world is fundamentally not a good place, not to be trusted, and we must do our best to control most every single aspect of our lives for nothing else will save us. I am my own savior, thank you very much. So conditioned, we interpret our vulnerability as something to be avoided at all costs and miss opportunity after opportunity to live into life with a passion and abandon that say, Jesus did. Here's what I have learned over the years of engagement with hundreds of people We cannot experience real, profound, loving relationship without living into, getting into, our vulnerability. Without disarming ourselves and without trusting the other with the least defensible part of our natures. If you are in a committed relationship with someone, Here's an absolutely essential component of living a dynamically life of love. In the deepest loving relationships, each partner holds gracefully and tenderly the weakness of the other. Each partner, get this, this one, boy, this just zips by people, I tell you what. Each partner gracefully holds tenderly the weakness of the other. If you do that, it is a powerful, powerful healing 
balm and you will be strengthened and ennobled in your partnership. You see, we think it's the other way around. I must be strong. It's important to exercise our strengths, of course, but it's allowing our partner to hold our weakness that holds the miracle. People and organizations alike can stall in their transitions because fear and stagnation batter down the vision of a world that is secure in the hands of a loving God. Without an implicit trust and a reliable presence, individuals and whole communities linger on the edge of a promising future, resisting the risk that is required, the risk of trusting and letting go. Courage and faith are the engines that drive a life well lived. These are born of a transcendent trust that life has direction and a goal. In here we say that goal is ultimately reunion with our Creator. Before that, reunion with each other. And at the same time, reunion with ourselves. And friends, all of that is pregnant potential when we say with confident trust, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever.